You can turn in your Bibles to Isaiah 65 and verse 17. This is the signal verse of a section of Isaiah's vision. And I'm going to read the context from 17 all the way through 25. For behold, I create new heavens and a new earth, and the former things shall not be remembered or come into mind. But be glad and rejoice forever in that which I create. For behold, I create Jerusalem to be a joy and her people to be a gladness. I will rejoice in Jerusalem and be glad in my people. No more shall be heard in it the sound of weeping and the cry of distress. No more shall there be in it an infant who lives but a few days or an old man who does not fill out his days. For the young man shall die a hundred years old and the sinner a hundred years old shall be accursed. They shall build houses and inhabit them. They shall plant vineyards and eat their fruit. They shall not build and another inhabit. They shall not plant and another eat. For like the days of a tree shall be the days of my my people be. And my chosen shall long enjoy the work of their hands. They shall not labor in vain or bear children for calamity. For they shall be the offspring of of the blessed of the Lord and their descendants with them. Before they call, I will answer. While they are yet speaking, I will hear. The wolf and the lamb shall graze together. The lion shall eat straw like the ox and the dust shall be the serpent's food. They shall not hurt or destroy in all my holy mountain says the Lord. This remarkable vision looks back to Isaiah's vision in chapter 11, and it extends it forward. And it looks forward to John's vision in Revelation 21, where John fills out even further what Isaiah began to see. Although some would claim that the book of Revelation does not quote the Old Testament in a single verse of the Old Testament, yet at the same time, the book of Revelation, it's been shown, is perhaps the most saturated with allusions to the Old Testament. That is, images, phrases, but maybe not full verses, that it's drawing upon and pulling forward to communicate God's truth. And so what I want us to do this evening is just to take a look at what John has been doing. We looked at this morning in Revelation 21. And what he's been doing is he's been pulling forward from Isaiah, especially Isaiah 64 and 65, to explain the visions that God's given him, particularly in John 20, in Revelation 20 and 21. So 
maybe think of it this way. Do we have any people that come from a farming background in here? I don't know why this illustration came to my mind. Paul? Uh, So milking, imagine the bucket is John's vision in Revelation 20 and 21. And John is going to milk the book of Isaiah, also Ezekiel, other texts, for all of that rich cream. And he's going to pull it into his bucket to then go on to explain the vision that he's, seeing, that, that he's seeing in Revelation 20 and 21. So we're going to look at this kind of milking of the images, the language, the theology from Isaiah 64 and 65, just in a cursory way. So if you're there and you can glance down and confirm or go on later to look back on these things, please do. In Isaiah, particularly in chapters 64 through 66, the language recurs of God's judgment of sinners by fire, and particularly fire that cannot be quenched. In Revelation 18 through 20, and then in 21.8, we have seen God's judgment of sinners and the satanic forces, particularly by fire that cannot be quenched. In Isaiah 65, 1-7, Isaiah describes the Lord's judgment against his rebellious and impure people. Now this right might remind us of Revelation, chapters 2 and 3, where Jesus judges five of his seven churches, but also of Revelation 20, where the Son, the Lamb, sits on the great white throne in judgment and judges the nations, great and small, which means everyone, Jews, Christians, nations alike. And so we see this, uh, this theme from Isaiah 65 being pulled forward and fulfilled in John's vision. In Isaiah 65, verses 8 through 10, the Lord will not destroy all of his people, but will cause those who are his servants to flourish in the land as they dwell with him. Now, who are his servants in Isaiah 56 through 66? These are the ones who back in Isaiah 53 confessed their guilt, their sin, their rebellion, and confessed that it was the Lord's servant who died in their place and bore their punishment. Now, in John, John's vision in Revelation 20, he calls these servants those whose names are written in the book of life. And in Revelation 21, we see this captivating vision of God's people flourishing in the land, the new Jerusalem on the new earth. In Isaiah 65, verses 11 to 16, these verses contrast the Lord's servants destined for blessing in the land with those who forsake the Lord destined for terrible horrific pain and punishment. Whereas we see a very similar vision in John 20 in Revelation 21 verses 6 to 8 which contrasts the ones who overcome and we understand this to mean by the blood of the lamb and the word of his testimony who are destined for blessing in the land 
with the wicked who are destined for terrible, horrific pain and punishment. And and I could be quoting for you text after text after text to to hear the echoes. uh, And that's something I would strongly encourage you to do. Go back to Isaiah 64 and 65. Read those texts and then read Revelation 20 and 21 and hear the echoes for yourself and let that encourage your soul. Finally, in Isaiah 65, 17 to 25, we see Isaiah's vision that we just listened to of the new heavens and the new earth. And again, Isaiah refers to the new heavens and the new earth in Isaiah 66, 22. John, again, milks this image in Revelation 21 to fill out even more of what the new heavens and the new earth will be like. But as John, Josh helped us this morning to see, he's, he's just grasping for words in the Greek language to try to make sense, to try to explain to his readers something of what he saw. I mean, just imagine streets made of pure gold, as clear as glass. What is that? Twelve gates. This one struck me recently. Each one made from a single slab of precious stone. That's a huge, massive slab of precious stone. No sun or moon because the glory of God illuminates the whole place. And, and then, of course, this is recalling the whole story of the Old Testament where You know, Moses, as Josh mentioned, asked to see God's face. And the Lord says, no. And no one, John tells us in in the opening of his gospel, no one has seen the Father. But the only begotten of the Father has made him known. And so we're getting this glimpse in the incarnation that something magnificent is shifting. We're seeing the embodiment of the Son of God But still there's this mystery because we're not seeing the Father. But then we come to Revelation 21 and we see this blinding light of God like the sun. And we're wondering perhaps, okay, maybe we can't see God. Because if we look at the sun, we go blind. But then, as Josh read for us this morning in 22, Revelation 22, we finally come to see that No, in our resurrected new bodies, they will be designed to actually look at the face of God and not be crushed. We will stare directly at the glory of God and of the Lamb. Remarkable. But why do we need a new heavens and a new earth? I mean... When God created the heavens and the earth, the refrain in Genesis 1 was, and it is good. And then he culminates that after he makes humans in his image with, it is very good. And even after the fall and the curse affects and fractures our relationship with our creator, with one another, with the rest of creation, every dimension of the creation has been fractured. Yet, we still see the goodness of creation persist. The heavens declare the glory of God. The skies proclaim the work of his hands, the psalmist teaches us. So why do we need a new heavens 
and a new earth. Well, I think John gives us some insight in this, but John is really relying on Isaiah, and Isaiah has given us the reason. So when we go to Isaiah, we can find a couple of things that he is is instructing that I think John is assuming and also John is explaining in the book of Revelation. First, we have forever stained God's good creation with our sin. Just like in Noah's day throughout history, humans have defiled the land with their sin against God. And this is a continual theme in those closing chapters of Isaiah 56 to 66. It keeps coming back, the defilement of the land by human sin. So now the Lord must come and purify the land by fire. Second, and maybe this will come as a surprise, there's another reason we need a new heavens and a new earth. Remember all of those texts of judgment that I kind of quickly scanned through in Isaiah 64 and 65? Well, there's one that I do want to read for you. And it's Isaiah 64, 1 and 2, and then 10 and 11. Oh, that you would rend the heavens. That means tear the heavens apart and come down that the mountains might quake at your presence as when fire kindles brushwood and the fire causes water to boil to make your name known to your adversaries and that the nations might tremble at your presence. Your holy cities, verse 10, have become a wilderness. Zion has become a wilderness. Jerusalem, a desolation. Our holy and beautiful house where our fathers praised you has been burned by fire and all our pleasant places have become Ruins. The Lord will tear apart the heavens to descend on the land and destroy it. The old Jerusalem for his covenant people was demolished. But in God's mercy, he will build a glorious new Jerusalem for those who trust in and delight in and glorify the Lamb. So what does this mean for us tonight as we sit here in the northernmost emirate on this pleasant evening? Let me give us two challenges from Isaiah 65, 17 and the related text that we've considered this evening. First, with Isaiah and with John, we must trust in God's promise that in our unjust world, the righteous judge will punish the evil of those who forsake him. But he will bless with a joyful life with him, his servants who trust in his servant, Jesus the Messiah. When you feel like people around you are crushing your spirit or you see others getting crushed by evil and injustice and sin and rebellion and violence and perversity, Lift up your eyes to the one who will come and tear the heavens apart to destroy all evil and injustice on the earth. To purify his good creation, which has been stained by our sin. And he will also be the one who wipes every tear from our eyes. 
second with Isaiah and with John, we must develop a habit of daydreaming. Now, we can't really control what we dream about in the middle of the night. I mean, psychologists talk, debate this, right? If you think about something throughout the day, like, and you verbalize it, um, like, try to say this, like, throughout your day, I'm flying, and imagine yourself flying throughout the day. Perhaps in your dream, you'll start to fly. But we don't have control over what we dream about at night, typically. What we do have control about is what we daydream about right now. I hope some of you are daydreaming right now, maybe checking out from my words and just kind of still thinking about those gates made of a single slab of precious stone and the glory of the Lamb that illuminates the city in which we will live together. I think we need to recover this practice of of daydreaming. See, because I think Paul, throughout his letters, he he drifts into this daydreaming practice. And it's subtle, but it happens frequently in his letters. He says, uh, I do not know which to choose. I'm hard-pressed between the two. My, My desire is to depart and be with Christ, for that is far better. And you almost feel like he you know, puts down the pen at that point. And then, oh, but for your sake, you know, I should stay here for a while. And no eye has seen, nor ear heard, nor the heart of man imagined what God has prepared for those who love him. In his book, The Weight of Glory, C.S. Lewis challenged us to not be so easily satisfied. But to daydream, to desire the infinite joy of life with Jesus. And I wrote this down before Josh quoted this text this morning. And so I'm going to give the fuller context of what you read for us this morning. It would seem that our Lord finds our desires not too strong, but too weak. We are half-hearted creatures fooling about with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered us. Like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in the slum because he cannot imagine what is meant by the offer of a holiday at the sea. We are far too easily pleased. So let's encourage one another to daydream together. Let's let's daydream independently. Maybe in your classes you start drifting off and your teacher, you know, says, what are you doing, Richard? Wake up. And oh, sorry, I was thinking about the New Jerusalem. Um, (laughs) uh, So we can do this on our own. We can do this with our neighbors who are like those ignorant children because they want to go on making mud pies in the slum. They have no concept of what it means to go on a holiday at the sea. Would you pray with me as we close together? Sovereign Lord, would you strengthen our trust 
in your word. That in your perfect righteousness you will judge all sin and evil. And in your perfect love you will vindicate your servants who worship the Lamb. Teach us to daydream again about our coming life with you in the new world. Teach us to bring our desires for infinite joy not to the people or things around us. But to you who will meet us one day in person on the new earth. To live among us as our God forever. In the name of your Son, we pray. Amen.